I'm going to start talking because this is really awkward in first service. While Steve arranges all of our stuff, I'm Dana DeVries. This is Steve DeVries. And we're speaking to you today about missions. Are you ready? All right. Sorry about that. As Dana just said, uh, my name is Steve DeVries. Uh, this is Dana. I, I normally teach at Redwood High School, so, um, and usually it's math. So there will be math, actually, but there's no tests. Um, so that's a good sign. Um, yeah, <laughs> yes, the best type of math. Um, and so, but yeah, we, we have just this awesome opportunity um, to, to talk with you today. Uh, our family went on a short-term trip this summer. Uh, Dana, myself, our oldest, Isabella, is in the service, and then we have two younger ones, Sam and Genevieve, in their Sunday school classes right now. So um, come meet us at the table afterwards if you want to. But, um, but yeah, so part of that opportunity was also the opportunity to uh, not only go on this trip, but we had the opportunity to lead the VBS uh, station of missions, which was super cool. Dana and I had the opportunity. Uh, the chance to talk with Corey and with Kathleen and um, I think in January and we started prepping later that afternoon <laughs> and we started thinking of what we could do and what we were going to um, to share and so I wanted to start off with that so that you could see what the kids kind of learned um, actually some of your kids might have these wristbands still that we we gave them out to kind of as a reminder of have have they heard, uh, which is kind of our theme for this, for today. So this is where we're going to start. But before that, let me actually pray for us, because that's important. <laughs> Heavenly Father, you are good and gracious. Thank you so much for the way in which you have provided everything for us. In your Son, we have perfect salvation Help us be willing to extend that grace to others in our conversation of your gospel and of its truth. Give Dana and I strength and wisdom as we speak this morning and let everything be glorifying to you in all that we say and how we act. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The big statistic that I threw, I told you there's going to be numbers, big statistic that I threw at the, the students was how many people have little or no access to the gospel? And just to clarify what exactly that means, how many people don't have a church that they could reasonably go to? Reasonably be, it might be in a different language, a different culture. How many people have little or no access to the gospel? The number's shocking. It's over 2.9 billion. Right? I'm a math teacher, so let's give that in perspective. If you said hello to every single one of those 2.9 billion people and you only took one second to do it, how long would it take? No breaks. It would take over 91 years. Right? Most of us wouldn't be there yet. That's how long it would take to actually just say hello to all of them. Or to give a different illustration, we have Starburst out at our booth, so if you want to remind yourself of this one, uh, this is a Starburst illustration. If we lined up these Starburst, 2.9 billion Starbursts. Is that coming up on the screen? Nope. Okay, 2.9 billion Starbursts. 
What would that exactly look like? How long would that line be? 34,000 miles. So you could go around the earth at least one time with those starbursts. Right? But when we came home, I actually encountered a different stat, a different statistic that I, I found just as troubling. These are not just uh, little or no access, but the question was asked, how many people who are non-Christians actually know a Christian? And so this is the way, it, well, well, I'm going to slip through that. There's our 91 years. Thank you guys, by the way. What percentage of non-Christians do not personally know a Christian? Now, this is from 2007. And the estimation was about 81%. If that was carried off to today, how many non-Christians do not personally know a Christian? It'd be about 4.5 billion people don't have a personal relationship with someone who trusts Jesus, or at least claims to trust Jesus. Again, if we were talking about number of seconds, meeting all of them, that'd be 142 years. Again, no breaks. No one's there yet. <laughs> right? If we were talking about Starburst, we wouldn't go around the world one time, we'd go around the world twice and have some leftover with 53,000 miles. There is a great, amazing need to reach people with the gospel. Some of those people who do not know Christians live in the United States. Some live in Visalia, but most of them, the vast majority, live in different parts around the world. Most of them are Muslim. Hindus and Buddhists, percentage-wise. They make up the vast majority of our mission field in terms of connecting people with the gospel. We have some numbers. Let's get some Bible underneath all of this. What is the attitude that we should have toward these unreached people, or in this case, people who don't really have personal relationships with Jesus? And for right now, I want us to look at just one passage. It's going to be Romans 10, 13 through 15. It's just a few minutes here. We'll touch on it a little bit later. But in this passage, Paul kind of lays out an argument for why missions, why going. So here it is. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not, who have they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This section in Romans, Paul is laying out an argument for justification by faith alone. He's contrasting it with attempting to be saved by works of the law. In this passage, he's talking about Jews who have rejected Jesus. And then he lays this out and says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Right before that in verse 12, it's talking about how Jews and Gentiles, there's no distinction, there's only one Lord of all. The entire world is under this situation, under this problem. Then verse 13, we, we read, it's a quote, Paul's making an argument. He's saying four. And he quotes from Joel 2.32. He says, everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. In the original passage in Joel, it's talking about the divine name of God, not just a title. 
And this is significant because in verse 9 of Romans 10, he links the idea of calling Jesus Lord as essential to salvation. And so he's essentially saying, when he quotes Joel, that you have to call on the name of Jesus Yahweh to be saved. There's a radical claim happening there that not only is theological, but has dramatic implications for who we are and what we do and how we live our lives. But it's only these people, only these people who are calling on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the whole point of the passage, because it's only by justification by faith. It's only righteousness that is based on faith. Those are the only people who are saved. So this is part of that argument. And then we have a follow-up argument based on that truth, that only those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Yahweh, will be saved. He, makes these four, he has these four questions. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Paul is making an argument. He's making a statement that is based on the truth that only those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And let's walk through the argument backwards. And since I'm a math teacher, I'm going to go with the conditional if-then statements. If, if no one is sent, then no one will preach. Right? That's the bottom. And we're going to go up. If no one preaches, then no one will hear. If no one hears, then no one will believe in the Lord. If no one believes in the Lord, then no one will call on him. If no one calls on the Lord, no one will be saved. The sending out of people to be preachers to be proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ is essential for salvation. It's foundational for the church and our mission and our goals in life and our goals as a community. But there's two roles really having to go on here. There's the one being sent out and there's one doing the sending. Both of those roles are essential because one can't happen without the other. When we close today, Dana's going to be talking about how we should be thinking about our job as goers or senders. Are we doing as good of a job as we could do? Can we step it up? And as we talk throughout today, we're going to be talking about our experience, why we have made the decision to switch from being senders, which is essential, and biblical to start pursuing our life as goers cross-culturally and globally. Dana's going to talk about that transition a little bit, but I want in the back of your mind to be actively thinking about how, what am I doing in this global expansion? Am I doing a good job in sending? Am I doing a good job in going? What is God calling me to do? How can I step it up? Well, um, 
So our journey, some of you might have been really surprised when you saw that we were the missionaries for VBS and or that we were speaking this morning. First of all, you might not have any clue who we are, which is fully legitimate. We're a large church. Secondly, you might have thought, really? Them? Um, And some of that was a question we were kind of asking ourselves. Um, So some background for Steve and me. is that we were both raised Christians. We were both raised in a church that loved missions, very much like Grace Community Church. Our church was a mega church, so we had Missions Month instead of Missions Sunday because there were so many missionaries that could speak in all the Sunday schools and the sermons. Um, But we had parents who um, supported missions, and we were just discipled to um, love missions and missionaries. But we never really thought about it for ourselves until 2006, um, after we'd had our first child, and we heard some missionaries speaking, talking about their time in Belgium. And we came home from Sunday school, and we looked at each other, and we thought, that is rad. We could totally do this. Let's do this. So we started pursuing missions. we, we were looking into where we could go. Steve had gone on a missions trip to Birmingham, England, and worked with the Muslim population there um, right before he went into college and had a real heart for Muslims. And so I said, sure, Muslims. I don't really know what that's about. I remember seventh grade, something about a box in the middle of a city, but I will follow you, husband. So we... Um, So we started looking at Muslim ministry, um, talked with a couple that was in Birmingham, England, thought, yes, let's do this. We got our application, but then we had to move out of our apartment and it was a whole thing and we ended up moving out of town up here to Visalia. So, and then we were trying to get things in order. So we put the application on hold and then Steve was doing more school and we were trying to get settled and, what was supposed to go on pause for a couple months went on pause for a year, and then it was a conversation that kind of turned into a year after year. What do you, what do you want to do? What you thinking about missions? It would usually come up when we were in a long car trip. Um, the kids would fall asleep coming home from the coast, and then we would dig into something um, like that. And um, then. The last time I remember talking about it is sometime in early 2013, but then we got pregnant with our third child, and that was just a whole new circus, and so um, the conversation was was gone, and um, in 2015, in the fall of 2015, Jenny Allen came to our town and spoke at the Fox Theater. I don't know if any of you went to that or remember that. But I was in the car praying about getting ready to go to this conference and asking the Lord to get my heart ready for what she was going to share. And I just had this thought from out of nowhere that was, this, this conference is going to be about what you're going to give up for missions. And that rocked my world. I don't have charismatic experiences. I didn't know what this was about. I didn't feel that this thought was from myself. But Sure enough, throughout the conference, everything that she was saying just dovetailed exactly with that. What was I going to give up? I had really settled into my role as um, Visalia housewife, mom of three. And um, so I came home 
and told Steve, I think we need to talk about missions again. And he said, great, because he had been thinking about it this whole time. Um, we just hadn't been talking about it. So then came nine months full of self-doubt uh, as the two of us prayed about it. And we kept looking at ourselves going, really? Us? Like, there's so many couples in our church who should be the ones going. We know who you are. We, we know who you are. You have been named. And it, it should be you. It, it really shouldn't be us, should it? And here's all the reasons why not. And, um, and we didn't want to tell anyone. We didn't want to be the couple that cried missions. We had already done that. We had said, we're doing missions, and then we left and we dropped it. And what if we say it again, and then it doesn't happen? And um, so anyway, but last summer, you know, we came to the point of saying, in Matthew 28, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. And we're willing to go. And even though we feel like there's a million people who could go, there aren't that many who are going. So maybe if we want to go, maybe we should go. And we'll let God tell us no. And um, it seems so obvious now, but that was a huge step of faith for us. That was really hard because it's so easy to see your own inadequacies. And really, aren't we all inadequate? And it's Christ who completes the work in us. But holy cow, that was hard. And so we were like, well, now are we starting over? I don't really want to contact the Johnsons in Birmingham. We kind of dropped them. And so what should we do? And Dan David came last year. I don't know if you remember him speaking with Frontiers. And he had the whole thing about the mosque in the church. Um, video. He was great. You should find him on the podcast if you didn't hear it last year because it was pretty great. And we were like, oh, a Muslim missions guy. And he connected us up with another couple in town, Gene and Linda Atkinson, who are at the Frontiers table outside. They are fantastic. And really, if you are someone who has a heart for Muslim ministry, and if you have a heart for Muslims in our city, find them. They are so faithful and have been great to just take us under their wings, remind us that it's not about us, it's about the Lord, showing us how we can just love Muslims for Christ in Visalia, which we've been doing this year. And um, they are the people to see. So um, I'm sidetracking and Jean and Linda. Oh, okay. So Jean, no, Corey. Here we go. So then we, then we had to tell somebody, finally. It wasn't just a few of our prayer partners. Here's our secret. Don't tell. But now we have to go to Corey and Don and talk about this missions thing. And surprisingly, we were not kicked out of the church, which was such a relief. But they encouraged us to go on a family missions trip, the five of us, and really see if this is something that we could do as a family or if this was... Um, you know, the glory days of our college years, revisiting again. And um, then shortly thereafter, Kathleen called us and invited us to be the missionaries for VBS. And that is how we have ended up um, being supported by you all and your children and getting this awesome opportunity to share um, the gospel with your kids and to share God's love for the world with your kids this year. So the, the big question that we have been asked by several people is, is why Birmingham? 
Like, why are you going to Alabama? Right? <laughs> so, no, we're not going there. We didn't go to Alabama. We went to Birmingham, England. They were very clear about how we should pronounce it, not like a Yankee. And so, but Birmingham, England, and um, just a little bit of information about Birmingham. It's the second largest city in the UK. It, there's about 1.1 million people. It's right in the middle. You can see it right there. It's in an area called, surprisingly, the Midlands, because it's in the middle. And, um, and this is their primary city center that you can see. And so there's, as I said, about 1.1 million people. It's the youngest city in Europe. 40% of the population is under 25. And so it is humongous. And a lot of that has to do with um, the immigrants coming into the country and their large uh, families that they have. And so <clears throat> the, the largest uh, immigrant populations that they have are primarily from Pakistan and some from India, and uh, they have a large Islamic population, about 260,000 plus Muslims, according to the 2011 census. 2000, I'm pretty confident that the next one in, in a few years is going to be way larger. Um, in 2014, the, you were more likely to be an Islamic student in Birmingham than any other type of student, um, even those who grew up in a more Christian environment. And so um, Muslims make up a large section of the population. This is a picture from 2015. It's um, the last day of Ramadan, which is their, their holy month where they uh, fast every single day. Um, and so there's about 70,000 to 90,000 um, participants. This was their, their celebration at the end of their 28 or 29 days. I don't remember how many it was that year. And so um, if you can see in that top left corner, you can see the, the minaret of a mosque there. Here's another picture of it. It's in the top left. Um, and then you have another one down there. The one in the, the, the left is the, the grand, or I'm sorry, the, the mosque a Birmingham Central Mosque. Both of these hold about 5,000 worshipers at a time, um, men's and women's sections, since they separate that. And then there's another about 5,000 uh, person mosque in, in the area. There's, from what I've seen, about 126 to 100, or, uh, 126 to 130 mosques in Birmingham. Um, so it's, it's quite influential. The area is, as I said, primarily Pakistani, even though there's a large Yemenese population there. Um, if you know anything about those two countries in terms of missions, those are closed countries. We have missionaries actively being kicked out. Um, Yemen, for obvious reasons, they're at war and they have their own civil war. So um, we were talking to some missionaries who used to be in Yemen. Um, and they've been, they're, they're leaving the area. We don't have active access to those countries as Western Christians. So when they come to England, when they come to other areas, and um, they come to Visalia, I've had um, Yemeni students. Um, and so they're, they're among us, but there's a large population in Birmingham, so there's a, an ample opportunity, a strategy, to be able to reach those people who were formerly unreachable in terms of being a close country. Also, if we have Pakistani Christians people who come to faith in Christ, Yemenese Christians, they come to faith in Christ, they have opportunities to go back to their home countries that we just don't have opportunities to. So there's a strategy to Birmingham. Birmingham also potentially is a very scary place. According to the New York Times, 
Birmingham, Birmingham has produced a disproportionate number of convicted Islamic militants. I don't know what an appropriate number is, but they've produced a disproportionate number of Islamic militants. Khalid Masood, the Westminster attacker from March, was from the Birmingham area. His house was about four miles from the place that we stayed. Um, but you know what? We didn't really feel any of that. I felt like I was in a city and there was city crime. I saw drug deals happen, prostitutes. Didn't feel like I was under terrorist threat, but I felt I was in a large city, right? But that is real. The week before we went, there was an arrest in the area, the direct area that we were ministering in because there was a, a person radicalizing others throughout Europe through YouTube. Um, and so there's many opportunities for the gospel. A terrorist, just like any person, their only hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need the gospel of Jesus Christ just as much as everybody else. And truthfully, it's their only hope to get out of those situations for real and for good. And so we saw, uh, we saw Birmingham as a great opportunity, a place that I obviously had deep connection with personally, having gone there 20 years ago now. Um, but we just saw the, the strategy and the, the individuals that we were working with, what they were doing. And so that's why we ultimately chose, as our short-term trip, we have no idea where we're going ultimately long-term at this stage, but where, where we went on our short-term was Birmingham, England, and it's just a place that you could be praying for. Right now, Dana and I are going to share a couple stories about people that we interacted with there, some Muslims that we were interacting with, um, and then we'll talk about uh, other experiences. So, thank you. Well, like I said before, Steve's really the one with all of the Muslim experience. And um, even here in town, as he's been working, I'm kind of waiting on the sidelines. He's got to build relationships. The wives always stay home. And so how do I get to see these women? I, we haven't quite figured that out. We're hoping to get some to come in once he can make friends. We can get a family in, and then I can make friends with her. But in the meantime, I kind of was going in blind to this, to this trip and was a little nervous. But gosh, these Muslim ladies are pretty fantastic. This culture is so warm and kind and friendly. And um, so our days were spent from day to day participating in lots of different things. There, there wasn't really a lot of time to get to know people, um, to speak into their lives in a full way. Um, but there was the opportunity to get into conversations and um, to, for me to really be a learner on what it is like to, um, to hang out with these gals. And um, part of what I had heard about as I was learning about Islam a lot this last spring in um, preparation for going um, is this whole idea of the honor and shame culture. And I don't know if you're familiar with that kind of a term, but it really um, governs a lot of the Islamic faith. And it's, it's, I'm trying to think of a good way to describe it, and I didn't do a good job in first service, but um, basically, we, they, they are bound to people through honoring them, and um, 
the, the things that they do bring shame upon their family, shame upon their community. It can be um, a real binding force that can keep people from, although they hear the gospel, from stepping out in faith with the gospel because of all of the implications that there are. If you have read Nabil Qureshi's book, um, Seeking All of Finding Jesus, I super recommend that book. And he delves into a lot his own experience as a Muslim dealing with the honor-shame side of what this will do to his family and the implications that arise from if he actually owns uh, a faith and a belief in Christ, um, which is hard. Um, but it also plays itself out in their communities. And so I was in this conversational English class, and we, um, we were having tea and biscuits, which is what you do in England. And um, so we were passing around the tea and biscuits. The, the Muslim gal to my left takes one, I have one, and it goes to my right. And then this gal um, starts announcing that she's not eating anything, she's not drinking anything, she's observing shawal. And Shawal, I had never heard of, but it's actually a secondary fast that happens after Ramadan. So Ramadan is their 30 days of no eating from sunrise to sunset, no drinking from sunrise to sunset. Then they have their little three days of celebration, Eid, which we saw the picture of happening in Birmingham. And then after that, there are six days of Shawal, which you can participate in in a certain amount of time. And if you complete Ramadan and you complete Shawal, then for Allah, he counts it to you as if you have fasted the entire year. So it's a big deal, and she described it as bonus points. And um, she said, this is my bonus points with Allah. And then she turns it on the girls, and how many of you are observing shawal, and who is going to take a biscuit, who's drinking tea, and it turned into this... Um, this whole thing. I, I can't really even describe it to you other than um, what I most noted was my poor friend on the left, Nargis, had taken and she could not hide. And the shame that she, that she had, she couldn't, she couldn't escape it. And um, she was lower and she was looked down on by the group for the rest of the day. And it really really broke my heart for her for so many reasons. Of course, you know, we have that where we already know this is a lie, right? So no, like you can't, you can't do that. This isn't going to make God happy with you. But also I could relate to her slightly on the level of getting caught up in the religious system. And I don't know if this has happened to you where you even as a Christian, you can misunderstand these good things that God has given to us to do. I'm reading my Bible, so God is liking me more. I am giving my money, so God is liking me more. I went on a missions trip in high school. I'm part of that group, so, you know, check me out. High school group, Poland team. No, like that's not how, that's not God's commodity. And, um, and my heart just breaks for her. 
Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He is our righteousness. He is the one who has done it all for us. And it so confirmed in my mind the desperate need for the gospel that will transform their lives and their relationships. No more shame, no more comparing ourselves to one another. We stand united at the foot of the cross, not edging ourselves one against the other. That is not God's way. And it's my prayer for her to find freedom in Christ and in her relationships through, um, through that. That didn't make sense, but I hope you know what I'm saying. Thank you. Um, I also had uh, a similar experience with just the Islamic culture, not as much with the shame components, but also with the hospitality. Uh, this individual he was an imam, a teacher of Islam, uh, Muhammad Qureshi. Um, it, John uh, Johnson and I had the opportunity to go into his house. Uh, it was a special setup. Uh, I really think it was an opportunity for John to get back into relationship with him, which is kind of cool that I was just this little springboard um, with it. And um, with with this conversation, we had our shoes take. We took our shoes off when we came inside. Within just a couple moments, we had our tea and biscuit, as Dana was saying. Um, th this man is a scholar, as you can see from all the, the amazing works behind him. Um, it's primarily in Urdu and in Arabic. He only has a few English works back there, but um, Urdu is the language of Pakistan, by the way, just to clarify. And Arabic is the language of the Quran. Um, and so he, he's a scholar. He's also a radio host. He had a daily radio program. And so we were probably eating up plenty of his time. We were there for about an hour and a half. And I think the only reason we really left so quickly is because John was concerned about getting a ticket because we were in our parking. Um, and so he said, you know, they have cameras everywhere. Um, and so in, in that area or in, during that time, we were just hosted and treated well. He was giving us of his time. The conversation was fluid. It was uh, interesting. He was definitely excited uh, to butter me up by talking about how great teachers are. Um, and so that was great. I didn't mind that at all. Um, we had conversations about um, our different religious beliefs and things like that. It wasn't the time to share the gospel in one moment and run. And the purpose was for John to be continuing this relationship. But something that struck me in the midst of this conversation was just the little phrase, all have sinned. And he threw it out there at one point, right? Yeah, everyone sinned. And what struck me about it as I was thinking about that this week, that's my daughter's Awana verse this week. She's in cubbies, right? That's her verse. All have sinned. But when we talk about that from the Bible, we mean something totally different than what Mr. Qureshi meant. He meant, well, no one's perfect. Yeah, we mess up a little bit. You know, I haven't committed any crimes. I'm not really that bad. And he actually said all of those things. In the Bible, we understand that sin is deeply evil. And, and we understand that there's a deep sinfulness of sin. When we hear all have sinned, we could think of the rest of Romans 3, which is where that passage is found. Or we could think of Genesis 8, which says the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's after the flood. 
before the flood, God describes our situation as every thought of man's heart is only evil continually. Right? Mr. Qureshi's view of his own sinfulness was a hindrance from him understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ and his need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He doesn't need a perfect God and man savior. He doesn't need someone who can take God's wrath for our evil because we've just messed up. And so that's something we need to be careful about in terms of communication, in terms of interaction with people. When we throw out phrases, we want to make sure we're on the same page, right? Yeah, he can say all have sinned. He could quote the cubby verse. That's good for him, right? I'm not sure if it, that, that actual phrase is found in the Quran or, or in the other literature, but they have an idea that no one's perfect. But they don't have an understanding of how deeply we need the Savior, how deeply we need Jesus. In this situation, I ran into a man who was not a terrorist. He was very active against terrorism. He was, his current book that he's writing is on multiculturalism and, and living peaceably, Muslims living peaceably in multicultural societies. You know, that, that's his current book that he's writing on. He's friendly, he's hospitable, he's nice. He's intelligent. His daughter is teaching in Cambridge. You know, they have, a, they have a great family. But he needs Jesus just as much as the women Dana was, talk, uh, were, was talking about who are experiencing that shame. He probably doesn't feel a lot of shame. He doesn't understand his need for Jesus because he doesn't understand his need because he doesn't understand his sin. And that, that was something that we encountered through all our experience in England was that there are different people at different places in their experience of the Christian religion and the Christian truth. Most of England does not attend church. It's less than 5%. And only about 2% of England go to churches that teach the gospel of Jesus Christ and that the Bible is the final authority. And if you want to hear more about that, we'll talk about that at Ironworks on Thursday. So come 6 o'clock, there's free food. Only men, unfortunately. You just have to contact Dana. Um, not six. Right. <laughs> not six. <laughs> um, but the, the condition of the church in England is not healthy. That was probably the most shocking thing while we were there. We both have plenty of stories to talk about that. We had good experiences when we went to church, but there's just not a lot of people. When we talked about that unreached category, the little or no access, the way they calculate that is about 2% evangelical or have uh, teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And surprisingly enough, England's about 2%. They're basically an unreached nation. One of, our, uh, one of the pastor contacts told us that they were so post-Christian that they were really pre-Christian. Right? There's churches everywhere, but they're empty. They've turned into other facilities. They're basically community centers. But they need people in their land. We only went to one country. There's 195 in the world. There are 4.5 billion people who don't know a Christian personally. So we need to figure out how we're going to step it up in terms of both our personal going but for most of us, that means our personal sending. How are we going to send? Are we going to send well or are we going to send poorly? And if we go, are we going to go well or are we going to go poorly? 
Dana has a few words on that. Yes. So I was talking about Matthew 28 before. Um, and it, it really is, it's the last, the section that I'm talking about is the end of Matthew, which is when Jesus is meeting with um, the disciples and the followers of Christ after his resurrection. And these are the last things that he says to them before he ascends. And, and he tells them, all authority has been given unto me, therefore go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The end. And in the section, he's not asking, raise your hand if you're interested in participating in this part of following me. You with your hands raised, go. This is a message to the church. And I think that it's fair to say that if you're not going and you're not sending, you are disobeying. So I want to talk with you about how to send and how to send well. Um, and I want to be clear too really quick that this isn't a box to check on your spiritual wellness card of how am I doing in the missions area, yes or no, okay, everything that God asks of us, he asks us to do with our hearts. And so what I want to focus on is how to do this with our hearts. Um, the first way that I think that we can be great senders is by praying, which is so obvious. It seems like that was a stupid thing to say. But, but what I mean by praying is not saying, I will pray for you. And it's not to say, I've thought about you, so I've prayed for you. And it's not hashtag praying, right? Or praying emoji. It is coming before the throne of God and spending time with God in a focused conversation about your missionary or their ministry or whatever else it is. Really praying. And um, I think that that's so um, hard. I think we're really busy, and it's so easy in our spare moments to pick up that phone and scroll through. We don't have a lot of margin in our lives, and yet this is the most important thing, right? To come before God for our friends, for our missionaries, for our church. Pray. So I want to encourage you to pray and to really pray. Um, the second thing that I want to encourage you to do is to be a friend and to be an encourager. Find out who your missionaries are. If you don't know anyone personally who's already on the field and you're not really sure, our church has a booklet that they put out of all the missionaries that we're supporting. There are obviously today tables out on the lawn full of missionaries with their newsletters. Get on some emails. Find the missionaries on Facebook 
and get to know them and send them a note of encouragement. Send them your Christmas card. You can spare one extra dollar for an airmail on a Christmas card. You're already spending $500. You could spend one more. How many Christmas cards are our missionaries getting? You know, we're sending them to places where there is no church or there's very little church. Where's their fellowship coming from? Who's praying for them? Who's saying hi to them on Sunday morning? Who is encouraging them? If it's not us, who is it? It's got to be us. We're sending them. It has to be us. So we need to do it. Um, you can also, if they are abroad, if they're not working already in the United States, what do they love that they don't have? Are they cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs? Do they miss marshmallows? Um, is it, I don't know, I, I don't even know what it is. I think we have a friend who's in England, and what was it? Something so basic, a can of refried beans. She can't get her hands on any pinto beans, and this Rose, Rosarita can of beans was like amazeballs to her. So, I mean, what can you send? What can you send? And as you're doing this, I want to emphasize to you that it's probably going to be very one way. Our missionaries that are going out, we're sending them out to commit themselves to the people where they are. So they are full to the brim with people, with relationships. If they have families, they're also trying to care for their families and make sure that their kids are not going crazy as third culture kids and feeling super weird where they are. And so when we're sending these things out, you may not hear back from them or you might get just a thank you. Thank you with a heart, and that's it. And you've poured yourself out, and you've gotten thank you. And here at home, that doesn't fly, does it? There's only so many times that you can really be run one way with a person before you're ready to cut this relationship loose. I'm looking for people to fill my cup. These relationships go two ways, but really, when we are being a friend and being an encourager to our missionaries, we are committing to relationships that will not necessarily fill us back up. But that is part of how we're loving them, knowing that though they may not be able to tell us, these things mean a million dollars to them. They so appreciate it, they just, they can't. They can't always spend themselves that much more to pour out their heart and soul to you. They're spent. Um, you are pouring back into them. The last thing that I want to touch on, excuse me, is the money thing. Um, because missionaries ask for money, because they're super crazy and they want to eat food and they need a place to live. So, you know, whatever that's all about. And, um, Sometimes it gets really hard w when you get asked for money. And um, so I want to speak specifically to the times when you are feeling like you're not able to give with joy. And um, I just want to encourage you to take those feelings, whatever they may be, bitterness, like, come on, you know, 
another one, or guilt, I really like this person, I have to give them money, what, what will they think, I don't know, and so there's this compulsion. Whatever the negative emotion is that's not joy, you need to take that to the Lord right away. You need to fight that. And I say that because I think that it is truly a foothold for Satan to get right in there and to divide us up and keep us from sending well. When we associate this bitterness or negativity towards the money, it starts polluting the way that we're thinking about what they're doing. We're sending them out from our minds. We are not with them on the field. We're not loving them. We're way less likely to pray for them. We're not really looking to encourage them because we're kind of trying to avoid them because we don't like the feelings attached to them. And so I just want to say whether or not you end up giving them money, that you take those feelings and you take it to the Lord. You make sure that that is clean and that you are able to love them well. So these three things I feel like are kind of unnatural. We're not used to giving up a bunch of free time. We're not used to maintaining relationships that are um, one-sided. And we're not used to giving away our money to people to live their own lives. Um, but we are not called to do these things in our own strength. We're called to do these things in the Lord. We live by the Spirit, not by the flesh. And so we know that these things are possible when we do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Lastly, I think that some of you senders need to be goers. And I'm not saying that because I have a list of your names at home. But I am saying that because when we see a statistic of over two billion people, you kind of have to wonder who's gonna go and why not you? Because come on, why us? So why not you? It, it's not, you don't have to be a super person. You have to be a super lover of Jesus. He's looking for vessels. I don't know why I'm getting emotional. He's looking for, ooh, excuse me. He's looking for people to love his gospel and to love strangers so that he can build his kingdom. He doesn't work independently of us to reach people with his gospel. He uses us. So we need to go. And I want to specifically talk to students right now because you are in the process of forming your vision for your life. You are creating habits and you are planning your future. You're thinking about what do I wanna do when I grow up? And maybe walking around telling people about Jesus and planting a church sounds way lame. And that's okay. You can still use your skills around the world. There are many closed countries where they don't want anybody's charity and keep your religiosity away from us. We are ex-religion. But are you good at tech? 
Are you good at marketing? Do you have ag skills? I mean, are you a teacher? Will you come teach us English? You can get in with a career and suddenly you're in a position to naturally have relationships with people and to get the opportunity to share Jesus right where you are doing this thing that you trained for. And if you could make money on the mission field, you're there. You don't have to do this, please give us money thing, which is really hard and sometimes awkward. So I really wanna encourage you to think beyond how can I do this for me? And what can I do? Who am I for the Lord? Who has he made me to be? And how am I going to influence the world in who I am? Because each one of you, he has purchased by the blood of Christ. And he's not going to waste it. But good golly, if you would go someplace where you were the only Christian, what could he do? That would be amazing. And just because you're 60 doesn't mean you can't go. Just because you're in your mid-30s with a family doesn't mean you can't go. But again, going is not the only way. We go and we send. And people can't go if the church is not doing what it's supposed to do. Senders send by loving and they minister faithfully in their church and they evangelize in their relationships so that people feel like they can go because the work is already being done here. So with that, let me close in prayer. God, you're so good to us. And it blows my mind that you choose to use us, that you don't just clean us up and treat us like little kids on the side and still go about your work just kind of saving us so that we're okay, but that you, you sent Jesus to die on the cross. You give us your spirit, you make us alive, and then you want to turn us loose. And I pray that we would. Will you move in our hearts for the people around us? I pray that we would not fall into the trap of hoping that our good deeds will be our testimony only, but that we will meet our good deeds with the truth of the gospel, that we will rightly risk uncomfortability and relationships right where we are, in love for the people around us and in devotion to you who deserves all praise and all glory and all honor. Let us give our whole selves to you. Whether we go or stay, may we be yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, root beer floats and hamburgers. Go get them. And don't forget to check people out at the tents. There's a lot of great people to meet and ministries to enjoy. Have a great morning.